Christmas to you all. It's a, a blessing to worship together as God's people. And we continue to worship this morning as we open God's Word and as we hear God's Word read and expounded and preached. And so this morning, would you open in your Bibles to the book of 1 John? We'll be in chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord, 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we come to you this morning knowing that you are a God who is love. Knowing that you have shed your love abroad, you have made it known, you have made it manifest, it has appeared in the coming of Jesus Christ, it has been displayed upon the cross. 
And we come this morning having experienced your love as your Spirit has come and has taken up residence within us. And we pray this morning. We ask, show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us again your salvation. We desire to hear your voice, for you will speak peace to us. You will speak peace to your saints. Oh, Father, we have great need to see of your love. We often grow so cold-hearted. We, we grow cold over the week, and we ask again that you would draw near and that you would show us your love. We are tempted to backslide and turn away. We are tempted to become with enamored with other things, to be drawn after other objects of delight. And we ask again this morning, show us your love. Oh, Father, we can be so dull at times. We can be so slow to understand. We can just be like the disciples in the Gospels. And we ask, show us your love again this morning. Make it manifest. Burn it upon our minds and place it within our souls. Make us a people of love who grow in love, who walk in love, who show in love, who are consumed with love. And so, Father, we wait upon you this morning. You must act amongst us. And we long for you to come and work amongst us by your word in the Spirit. Father, we ask you to do this for the, for the sake of your great name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're a bit disjointed after last Sunday. It's broken up the flow of the, the sermon series, but it was a good um, break up there. And so the questions that we're asking are these. What are God's aims for his people in the gospel. And what is God trying to achieve through the means of grace, preaching and prayer and the sacraments? Who are we to become as God's people? What are God's aims for us? And we can bring this to bear upon the Christmas season as well. Christmas is two days away. Why has Christ Jesus, why did Christ Jesus appear in the flesh? And we have seen in the last two weeks that God is working through all of these things to make us a people of hope. And this hope is grasping firmly the promises of God, despite all opposition, despite trouble, despite present circumstances. And hope is this present attitude that God is going to act according to his character and his promises in the future. And we've seen that God is also working to make us into a people of faith. And this faith is a definite persuasion. It's a confidence and assurance that God and his son are indeed trustworthy. And so we entrust ourselves to them. And so this morning we come to the last chord, this threefold chord. And this last chord is the chord of love. And when we dig into faith, when we dig into hope, the longer we work to understand these realities, these aspects, the longer we work to apply faith and hope to our souls, we, we, we learn that there's something underneath these. 
We learn that there's a deeper root to our life with God than faith and hope, and that this deeper root is the reality of love. The Apostle Paul writes upon love in 1 Corinthians 13, and he points to this, this deeper reality at work within God's people. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And to drive his point even further home, Paul goes on to say, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So we must say then, following the lead of the Apostle Paul, that chief among God's desires for his people is to make us into a people of love. A people who walk in love, a people who show love, a people who practice love, a people who are constrained by love, a people who are consumed in love. And so the book of 1 John is a book very concerned about this matter of love, especially love practically worked out within the people of God. And John, just like the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, brings us to see the necessity of love within the Christian life and within the Christian community. John shows us that love is the chief virtue for the Christian life. And John bears out the demand of love in chapter 4, verse 7. He says in our text this morning, Beloved, let us love one another. And John comes alongside us this morning, and he works throughout this letter as a a patient father. A patient father who comes along and gathers his children together, and he instructs his children, he reminds his children about what matters most. And he places before us the demand of love again and again throughout this letter, patiently reminding us what is the most important The book of 1 John is full of oughts and shoulds and lets. Chapter 3, verse 11, John says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Chapter 3, verse 16, We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Chapter 3, verse 18, Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Chapter 3, verse 23. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Chapter 4, verse 11. We also ought to love one another. So as we think about John's fatherly concern, as we feel him gathering us around and reminding us, we have to ask John, where do you get this fatherly concern from? Why is he so demanding? Why is he so repetitive about this issue of love? And I think the answer is this, that John learned love, he witnessed love, he experienced love in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. What we see 
John doing is he brings to us all that Jesus says on the issue of love, and he applies it directly to us. And when we think about John, John is one uniquely fit to be able to do this work. When we think about the life of John, John was among those whose feet were washed by the Lord Jesus. He was among those who watched Jesus lay aside his outer garment and take up the basin of water and go around the room one by one washing the disciples' feet. And John himself sat there and experienced this love of Jesus. And John himself listened to Jesus explain and preach on love. Jesus took up the the law of Moses and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. He said, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. John was there. John heard this exposition. And John experienced the intimate bond of love with Jesus. He reclined at table with Jesus. He was called the one whom Jesus loved, the beloved disciple. He rested in the the bosom of Jesus. And John witnessed and he knew and he experienced the sacrificial love of Jesus. And these words were permanently branded upon his soul. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And he saw it in the cross. And so John, after learning and witnessing and experiencing love from Jesus, brings the force of Jesus' words to us. He teaches what Jesus teaches. What does Jesus teach about love? You can go to John chapter 13. Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus teaches in John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So we see here the demand that Jesus, the demand of John, brings to us cannot be any clearer or any more forceful to us. As God's people, we are called to be a people of love. As members of the new covenant, as those who have been grafted in the true vine and share in Christ Jesus, we are to be a people of love. Love towards God, love towards neighbor, love towards brother and sister. And so with this burden and work of love before us, it's a calling that goes vertical. We're called to love God, Deuteronomy 6, and we're called to love our neighbors and brothers and sisters. We have to ask, what does it mean to love God? What does it mean to love our neighbors and our brothers and our sisters? Defining love can be a, a tricky and hard thing. And so Jonathan Edwards helps us this morning. He wrote a book called Charity and Its Fruits. And the whole book is an exposition of 1 Corinthians 13. And in this book, he he gives us some clarity and he gives us some helpful definitions to understand what love is and how it works. And so he defines love very simply. He says this, Love is that disposition or affection whereby one is dear to another. That seems pretty simple. One is dear to another. 
And we see this all around us. My wife is dear to me, my children are dear to me, and I I love them. But we can press further on Edwards because he has more to teach us about love. We have to ask him, what does it mean for God to be dear to us? And he answers, he says, When God is loved aright, he is loved for his excellency and the beauty of his nature, especially the holiness of his nature. What Edwards is saying is that loving God means that God's supreme worth has become dear to us. When we love God, it means that there is in us an an attachment of the will and the soul and the affections to God as God. We are inclined to value and cherish his character, his holiness, his love, his power, his grace, his goodness, and so on. They become dear to us. We become attached to them. It is this dearness to God that we see worked out in the scriptures. In Psalm 42, the psalmist says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. But we have to ask if that's what vertical love is. What is horizontal love? What is love to brother and sister? What is love to each other? Edwards continues on pushing on this definition of love, and he says, Love to God is the foundation of love to men. And men are loved either because they are in some respect like God, meaning they possess of his nature and spiritual image, or because of the relation they stand to him as his children or creatures, as those who are blessed of him or to whom his mercy is offered, or in some other way from regard to him. So what Edwards is saying is vertical love to God is intrinsically connected to horizontal love to man. When we learn to love God aright, when we cry out with the psalmist, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God, we are moved to love people that God has made. And we love the people because of God, because of their likeness to God, because they bear His image because they're creatures of God, because God has made them. So Edwards brings us to the heart of the matter. He shows us this inward reality of love. It starts in the affections. It's this dearness. It's this fondness. But we have to ask Edwards, what kind of clothes does love wear? How can we recognize when someone in fact is loving God and when someone in fact is loving their neighbor and their brother and their Sister, what does it look like? And he goes on, he says, If a man sincerely loves God, it will dispose him to render all proper respect to him. Love to God will dispose a man to honor God, to worship God, to adore God, and to acknowledge his greatness and glory and dominion. Love will dispose the Christian to behave toward God as a child to a father amid difficulties to resort to him for help, and to put all trust in him. It will dispose our hearts to submission to the will of God. Love to God will dispose us to walk humbly before him. What Edward says is that love to God is 
is clothed with the most beautiful clothing you can find. It comes with humility and reverence and worship and trust and submission. The most beautiful clothes we can find. And there are also practical effects of our vertical love to God. It flows out horizontally to brother and sister. And Edwards goes on. And he paints us a picture. He says, Love will dispose us to acts of justice and truth-telling. Love will dispose to walk humbly among men and to honor one another. Love will dispose to contentment, meekness, and even gentleness. Love will dispose to acts of mercy and to give to the poor. So Edwards is is pushing on us. Love to God works to love to man, and love to man works itself out in the most practical and tangible ways we can imagine. Love to man encompasses all areas of our lives. Encompasses our life in politics, our life in the workplace, our life in the marketplace, our lives in the neighborhood, in our homes, and most importantly, within the church, within the people of God. So this morning, I've structured this sermon a bit so that you feel the weight of love. I want you to feel the weight of love on your shoulders. I want you to be saddled with the burden of love. So love makes a demand upon us, a universal and all-encompassing demand. We are to love God, and we're to love all that God loves. Everywhere we go, every sphere we operate in, love makes its demanding claim upon us. We cannot escape it. And as we consider what Edwards calls us to, as we consider what John calls us to, as we consider what the Lord Jesus calls us to, we have to ask, how can we fulfill such a demanding mandate of love? How can we live this reality out? How can we survive with this weighty burden upon our shoulders? As we turn back to the letter of 1 John, John is a a good pastor, a, a good father, and he anticipates these kind of questions, these kind of objections. I can't do it. And it's here he speaks in an interesting, a counterintuitive word. If you go to 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, John instructs us. He says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. John knows that as a pastor and as a father, that his people can indeed live out this mandate. And not only can they live out this mandate, but they can thrive and flourish and grow in love. For this demand of love, as John says, is not a heavy weight that pushes us and drives us into the ground. Rather, these oughts and these shoulds and these lets are a matter of divine delight and joy. So this morning, with the rest of our time, I want to show you three reasons why John can say to us, and his commandments are not burdensome. Three reasons why we can actually flourish and grow in this mandate of love, why we actually can fulfill these shoulds and these oughts and these lets. We can actually love God and we can actually love each other. So reason number one, the God who demands love is love. 
So we've heard a lot about ourselves this morning as we've worked through Jonathan Edwards' definition of love, as we heard the demand of love from 1 John, even from Jesus. But if we want to grow in love, if we want to flourish in love, we must look up and look out and see the God who is love. And this is the only way we can flourish in this task of love. And John directs our gaze. Look at verses 7 and 8. John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So we see in these verses, John is is reasoning away about love. And his logic of love is tied directly to what he says about God. If God is like this, then love must then be like this. We must define love like this. If God is like this, then we as Christians, those born of God, must act like this. And so we see that God is the the son of John's solar system. And as he defines these aspects, as he defines love, as he defines how we are to live, everything is conformed to the center of that solar system. Everything is operating around God and who God is. And these words, God is love, do not just form the center of of John's thinking and reasoning about love, but they but they jump off these pages as some of the most important words ever written. God is love. We can think about it. In all the histories that ever have been written, you can go old, Tacitus and Herodotus, in all the great works of literature from Homer to Shakespeare, in all the philosophies that have been written from Plato to Aristotle, no more important words have ever been uttered or declared about reality or about God. Who is God? God is love. And in hearing and in reading these precious words, God is love. We have gained greater insight than all the saints of old. When Moses cried out to the Lord, show me your glory, he only saw the backside of the Lord. But John here brings us to a greater vantage point of God. He brings us to see the very nature and goodness of our God. And this morning, we do not stand hidden in the cleft of the rock, but we stand beholding the glory of our God. And John tells us who our God is. God is love. Brothers and sisters, what a a glorious reality to consider about our God. God is love. He is love eternally. The God who spoke all things into existence in creation. The God who called Abraham and gave him those great promises. The God of the Exodus who came and trampled over Pharaoh. The God of the exile. The God of the Gospels. The God of the future is a God who is love eternally. And our God is love infinitely. There are no bounds to his love. There are no borders or edges to that great country of love. Paul just revels in this fact of the infinitude of God's love. He says, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And our God's love is immutable. Seasons change. 
We grow old, we decay, we die, but God's love is unchangeable. His love does not grow, it does not wane in degree. His love does not increase, his love does not decrease. And God's love is faithful. He doesn't forget his love. He doesn't forsake his purposes of love towards his people. And our God's love is sovereign and it is powerful. The God who rules over all things, the God who brings all things to pass, is a God who is love. And his love is holy. His love is just. It does no wrong. It transgresses no righteous decree. And we could go on and on this morning thinking about the love of God and how it permeates the whole being of God and all of his character. We have to ask, why? His commandments are not burdensome. Why aren't they burdensome? Because love is from God and God is love. Our God is this glorious fountain of love. It pervades his whole being, and it's a fountain that overflows and spills over, a fountain that cannot be contained. God's love exudes from his works, his acts, his deeds, his character. And so when we come to these oughts and these shoulds and these lets, these are not burdensome because they are a call to come to this glorious fountain and partake. John is calling us to come and share in this life of God, to come to Him and partake in His glorious nature of who He is. And John calls us with these oughts and these shoulds and these lets, come to this great fountain and partake of this glorious God who is love. Reason number two. The God who demands love has loved. We see this revealed in verses 9 and 10. John brings the gospel to us. He says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We can praise God this morning because the God who is love has not remained hidden, but his love shines through and has been made evident in his giving of his son, in the cross of his son, and God's love has taken the most tangible and costly form we could think of. And we must revel in the love of God this morning because our God's love is so different from ours. When we think of our God's love, it stands in contrast to our love. Why do we love? You think about it. Why do you husbands love your wives? Wives, why do you love your husbands? Why do you love your car? Why do you love your home? Why do you love all these different things? Well, we love because something is lovely. We find an attraction in it. There's something, husbands, that drew you to your wife that elicited these emotions, these affections. We find some sense of fondness in an object. But when we come to God, God's love is different than ours. Because God has loved a people who aren't lovely. God has loved a people who aren't attractive. He has set his affections on a people who deserve only wrath and judgment. And John is very clear about the sequencing 
and motivations of our God's love. Verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and gave His Son. God's love did not move towards us because we were making a good effort towards Him. God's love did not appear because we asked for it. His love flowed towards us when we had no bond of affection towards Him. And this is what the Scriptures preach all the time. We can go to Paul, Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Paul makes clear the sequencing of love. This is central to our understanding of the gospel and how the gospel works. Paul says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we can rejoice. What amazing love has been shown in the cross of Christ. God loves the unlovable. Martin Luther comments on God's mysterious love. And he says, he's very helpful. He says this about God's love. God's love does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. Sinners are attractive because they are loved. They are not loved because they are attractive. This is the love of the cross, born of the cross, which turns in the direction where it does not find good, but where it may confer good upon the evil and needy person. God's love is asymmetrical to ours. We love because something is lovely. God loves the unlovely. God's love, Martin Luther says, does not find, but creates. It's a creative love. And praise be to God. His commandments are not burdensome. Why? Because God has made his great love manifest. His commandments are not burdensome because God in his Son has come and has met our needs and removed every obstacle that stands in our way of fulfilling these oughts and these shoulds and these lets. The Lord Jesus himself carried the burden of love. The load of love was squarely placed upon his shoulders and he felt the immense weight of it. He bore it upon the tree. And the marks of his love are forever imprinted upon his body. See his scarred hands, see his scarred side. He has borne the burden of love. And so we can ask this morning, what has become of all of these things that have separated us from God? What has become of all of these things that have thwarted us from filling this divine mandate of these oughts and these shoulds and these lets? John answers us, what of our sins? What of our treason against God? The love of God answers. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all our sins. And Jesus has come to take away our sins. But what about the wrath of God? God stands angry at the sinner. The love of God answers. Jesus is our propitiation. He has stood in our place and he has satisfied the justice and the righteousness of God. Jesus is the great place taker. He has gone where we have not gone and he has stood where we have not stood. But what about our bondage to Satan? 
What about the many temptations that draw near to our souls and distract us from this mandate of love? Well, the love of God answers. Jesus has appeared with a blessed purpose to destroy the works of the devil. But what of death? What of that great and last enemy that torments us and that brings fear to our souls? Well, the love of God answers. Jesus has appeared so that we may live. So John can say in chapter 4, verse 11, with great confidence, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We can do it. Reason number three. The God who demands love works love. So we've seen that God is love. And this God who is love has penetrated our world. He has made his love manifest. And by God's grace, his love penetrates our hearts. Here we have to reflect upon Jesus' great promise to his disciples in John chapter 10. The disciples are worried about Jesus' taking leave of them as he goes to Jerusalem, as he goes to the cross. And Jesus tells his disciples, I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And believers, we must see this morning that the whole Godhead, the triune God is involved in this great work and expression of love. Father, Son, and Spirit are wrapped up in making us into a people who love The Father is the great fountain of love and we're beckoned to come and delight in Him. The Son has made manifest love in His appearing and in the cross. And the Spirit infuses and works love in our hearts. Chapter 4, verse 12, John says, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. And John makes clear, if we move towards each other in love, if we care for each other, if we do what Edward says, we're people of truth-telling and justice and giving to the poor, if we seek the good of our brothers and sisters, this is all an evidence to a divine reality at work within us. John traces the source of love within us to God within us. John says in verse 12, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And if we go down to verse 13, John continues to drive home this point. He says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us. Why? Because he has given us of his spirit. So John comes and comes to us with the the great burden of love, and he says, and his commandments are not burdensome. Why? Well, rejoice in this, believer. The God of love has come to you, and he has taken up residence within you and within the church. God Almighty has drawn near to the believer and works powerfully in us to accomplish his purpose of love because he has given us of his spirit. 
The Apostle Paul reasons the same way in Romans chapter 5, verse 5. He says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So this morning we can smile, we can have joy, we can praise God because the very power that raised Jesus from the dead, going back to the book of Genesis, the very spirit that hovered over the surface of the waters, that very sovereign spirit who John talks about, who blows where he wishes, has been given to us. And he has come to us as a divine agent of love, working love in our hearts. He has come to make sure that love is fulfilled in us, that these oughts and these shoulds and these lets would find a true and tangible reality. So believers, this morning as we think about these three reasons, God is love, God has shown his love, God works love. We have to realize we lack nothing. We lack no resources. We lack no power to flourish in these oughts and these shoulds and these lets. God has come and he abides in us. Isaac Watts writes movingly of the love of God in his hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, and Watts leads us well in this hymn. He, he brings us to see the, the definite, manifest love of God, and he, he writes about Jesus upon the cross. He says, directing our attention, See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet? Or thorns compose so rich a crown. What Watts is saying is if you want to know the love of God, if you have doubts about the love of God this morning, if you're not sure, Isaac Watts says, Look up, behold the cross, I, the crucified Savior. But where does this love of Christ lead us? Where does the cross lead us? And Watts goes on in his hymn and he says, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. What Watts is saying is that in light of the cross, in light of this great love that has been shown in Christ Jesus, if Watts had the whole world, were the whole realm of nature mine, all created reality, if you were to give that to God in thanksgiving, that were a present far too small, far too insignificant. So where does this love lead us? Watts says, it demands my soul, my life, my all. So brothers and sisters, the demand of love, it's before us. And let us, as God's beloved, as God's beloved, those who've experienced God's love, fulfill these oughts and these shoulds and these lets because we can. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we rejoice in you this morning. Who is like you? A God who is love and who has shown his love to us and has brought love to bear upon us. 
And we rise up and we praise you this morning. We rejoice in you. And oh, Father, we pray this morning that we might know your love all the more. Give us strength today to bask in your love. Would you reveal it to us? Would you press it upon our hearts? And would you cause us to walk in these oughts and these shoulds and these lets? Amen.